This is the Artisan CEO Podcast, Season 3, Episode 6. On this episode, we'll be talking about the worst investments I've made in my dozen-plus years of business. We'll be covering my biggest regrets when it comes to AGP dollars I've spent, and the one investment that may have been a waste of money during my wedding photography days, but that I'd probably still choose to spend money on now that I'm a brand photographer. Welcome to the Artisan CEO, where the art of photography meets the business of profits. This is where strategy and craftsmanship coexist so that you can run a creative business that supports a life you love. I'm your host, Abby Grace, and I promise to give it to you straight. In case you haven't picked up on my modus operandi, I love starting each podcast episode with a story. Um, and part of that is because I love the story that our pastors always tell at the beginning of each sermon. Like it always starts with a story. So I always make sure I'm in there right like that, you know, if we're going to be like a few minutes late to church, I want to make sure that I'm there for the beginning of the sermon because I want to hear the story that they're going to tell because it always sucks me in. So here is episode six's story. So it was right at the beginning of the pandemic and I was totally freaking out because on this particular day we had had three emails come in. I think it was a Monday sometime in May. Um, and three emails from brides who were either postponing their wedding by at least a year or canceling their event altogether. Just that meant that their remaining balance was not due, just money gone. And I wasn't sure what the next several months were going to look like for us in terms of photography gigs. We had started doing branding photographs. I mean, I I, I had been branding myself as a branding photographer, but um, we were still relying pretty heavily on, on wedding income. So I was freaking out. <laughs> Uh, we already had a bit of online education going, uh, but it wasn't bringing in a substantial amount of money every month. Um, however, I knew it was something that had the potential to make more than it currently was. It was kind of like a back burner project for that at the, for us at the time. Um, and wouldn't you know, at that point in time, I got hit with an ad or like a promotional email or in some way, shape or form, this came across my desk. This one educator that we had purchased from in the past who was promising to help with my exact problem. Fantastic. So we scheduled a sales call with this educator's team and um, we were told they could solve all of our problems by this very enthusiastic salesperson on the other end of the line. And they told us, hey, you know, if you enroll in this program before the call is over, that they would love to offer us a quote unquote scholarship because, you know, times are hard. <laughs> um, and I wasn't comfortable making a decision in the next like six minutes. So I said, can I have an extra couple of hours? And they're like, yes, we will email you today at 5 p.m. or whatever um, and we need your decision by then um, so we consulted with a couple of other business owners that we trusted and decided we're going to go ahead and take the plunge and then after like a month or two in the program Matt and I were both kicking ourselves because it turns out that this coaching program that we were sold on the phone it it, it didn't really exist it was actually more of like a glorified course with a little bit of like automated accountability built into it. Um, and we paid $7,000 for that mistake and it was mostly my fault. And I say all of this not because um, I want to make anybody feel bad. And, and you guys, 
you don't know this educator. They run in a completely different industry, a different niche than, than the photography industry. So you wouldn't know who I was talking about, even if I did say their name. And and I'm not bringing this up to make anybody, I don't want to like stir the pot or spread gossip, but I want you to understand that like from where I'm standing and and wherever it is that you're standing, it can be really easy to look at me and say, oh, wow, she's she's only ever had it easy or like all of her, <laughs> all of her decisions have panned out. Like, no, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way and so I'm sharing this not to make anyone upset on my behalf but just because I want you guys to see the real nitty-gritty garbage that happens behind the scenes that you never see on social media so that you know when you make similar mistakes you are not the only one okay so okay seven thousand dollar mistake mostly my fault um and I want to I also want to say like salespeople should be held accountable for misrepresenting our product. So like, yes, it was my fault for, I felt like it was my fault that we that we, made, we made that financial quote unquote mistake. But I also think there should be some accountability for salespeople selling the product that they're actually selling, not selling a dream that doesn't exist. Um, and I believe that that guy who was on the other side of the phone was willing to tell me whatever it is that I wanted to hear instead of being transparent about whatever it was this course, this program, actually offered. But it was my fault ultimately for making a decision, and especially a $7,000 decision, for making that decision out of fear and panic instead of doing my research. For an investment that large, I should have looked up somebody else who had been in the program and asked them about their experience or maybe looked closer at the case studies that were cited on the sales page and, and you know, are these people in a similar situation to us? Are they looking to do similar things to what we're looking to do? Instead, I just was panicking and I took what the salesperson said over the phone and, and assumed that that was all I needed to know. Um, and we it ended up costing us a lot of money. Um I have learned a lot from the money that we have invested over the years. We've had a lot of wins, sure, but every once in a while we'll spend money and I will realize after the fact that it was not in fact a good use of resources and it's a really bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> so today I am begging you, please learn from my mistakes so that you do not waste the same time or money that I did. You can make new mistakes and you definitely will, but at least you can console yourself with the fact that you avoided these particular mistakes because the Artisan CEO podcast did you a solid. Real quick, photographers, are you tired of lather, rinse, and repeating the same tired collection of forgettable photos from one brand session to the next? If you're ready to turn yawn-worthy galleries into the sort of results that thrill your clients and get you both noticed, then you're definitely going to want to join me for my free training, The Backstage Secret to Scroll-Stopping Brand Photography. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or you're just getting started out in the world of branding, this session is for you. I'll teach you my number one strategy for crafting stories that resonate with your clients and their audience, which is the biggest secret behind creating galleries that not only look stunning, but also drive engagement and sales for your clients, which, spoiler alert, is what keeps them coming back for additional sessions in the future. Because as brand photographers, purposeful matters more than pretty, but who says you can't have both? Our job is to think like a marketer and shoot like an artist, but you have to have both pieces of that equation and learning to approach with the mindset of a strategist that changes everything. So if you're raring to say goodbye to cliche galleries that simply repeat what's already clogging your Pinterest and social media, 
and hello to a method that drives brand loyalty and real bottom line growth, then head on over to abbygrace.co slash training. That's abbygrace.co slash training. It's time to leave those forgettable, smiling at a laptop photos in the dust in favor of a more tailored approach that's gonna leave your clients obsessed and already planning for their next shoot with you. One more time, that's abbygrace.co slash training. I'll see you in class. Okay, number one worst investment was the program that I just described. I feel like that's pretty obvious. Um, But a more generalized bucket would be investments made out of fear or panic. Uh, Because I was freaking out at the time about all of those canceled or postponed weddings, I was eager to believe whatever was fed to me by that sales call. And I I bypassed my usual standard operating procedure of doing my dang research (laughs) before making a big purchase. And I understand that the sales tactic of introducing urgency of saying, hey, we want to give you the scholarship, but you only have like, you know, a few hours to decide. Introducing urgency isn't at its core an unethical sales practice because in the end, what urgency can help somebody do is to make a decision one way or the other. Um, We are launching the lighting course next week that I've mentioned a couple of times over the last few episodes, and there will be a significant discount on the course for the first week. And that's because we want to get it into the hands of people who know that they need it, but maybe they would otherwise, if it wasn't on sale, might defer that decision for months and months, maybe never take action on it because they didn't have to make it or they didn't want to make a decision. And so there was nothing pushing them to, you know, get on one side of the fence or the other. So they just didn't. Um, and I know as the educator, what's if, if this target audience is struggling with this exact problem that I have a solution for, that it is in their best interest get to get this product in their hands. We want to make it easy for them. Urgency is one of the six methods of persuasion that you can use to do that. Robert Cialdini talks about it in his book, Persuasion. There's six ultimate factors that we can use ethically to persuade people to make a decision, and urgency is one of those. But what I should have recognized was that fear of missing out or FOMO and the panic over the the pandemic. So FOMO over not wanting to miss out on this discount because I think the program was normally like $9,000 and they're like, we're going to give you a discount for seven. And I was like, whoa, $2,000. I only have a few hours to make a decision. So the FOMO over not wanting to miss out on the discount and then coupled with the panic over the pandemic and how it was affecting our business, all of that was clouding my ability to think clearly. In no other area of my life would I drop $7,000 without researching exactly what I was getting for that price. And I didn't know the price of this program until we got on the phone. There was no sales page with pricing information. Um, I don't even know that there was a payment plan. I think it was just like all $7,000 due all at once. And we only found out that amount once we were on the sales call. Um, I have other thoughts about that, but that's for another podcast episode. So in no other area of my life, no other time of my life, would I drop $7,000 without knowing exactly what I was getting for that price. But we do really weird things when we're scared, right? And A lot of marketers know how to use that for better or for worse, Um, sometimes for really honorable purposes and and then sometimes for less than honorable purposes. And again, please don't get me wrong. There is a place for introducing fear in marketing, and you can do that ethically when there's a real cost for someone not taking action for the problem that you're trying to solve. Like, for example, let's say, um, let's say you're a marriage coach or a marriage counselor, and um, 
you know that if someone and their spouse simply buries an issue instead of working through them, instead of talking about it and communicating openly, that one day those issues are going to surface and the results could be explosive. And so maybe your marketing argument circles on that, like, hey, are you hurtling towards impending doom because you and your spouse are refusing to communicate? Uh, And then you can position the solution, you know, hey, if you're learning healthy conflict resolution skills, you can deal with those issues as they come instead of everything piling up and resulting in a huge fallout down the road that could result in separation or divorce. Like that's a, a, an ethical way to use the fear argument because you know it's real and you know you can help. It's not You're not manufacturing a problem or promising a solution that you can't actually deliver on. Or you have photographers who sell presets or editing courses. I'm thinking specifically of Caitlin James. But a lot of her messaging around her consistency course is around the time that it's going to save you when you learn to edit more faster, you know, and 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 more efficiently. Um, and so on her sales page, it plucks that that string of anxiety a little bit that you're you may already be feeling over spending too much time in front of your computer and missing out on time with your kids. And because this product can save you time and it is an actual solution to a problem you actually have, it's okay to identify your target audience's fear in your marketing argument because you know you can actually help to solve that fear. So I'm not saying that you should never talk about fear as you market your business, but you do have to recognize when you, the consumer, are making decisions from a place of fear and not necessarily from a place of rational, logical thought. And more particularly, you have to be able to recognize when when you're not only feeling fear, but when you're being ruled by panic because panic clouds our ability to think rationally and it bypasses those more logical questions you might otherwise ask when you're thinking with a cool head. Moving on to bad investment number two, over-the-top styled shoots. Okay, before the styled shoot lovers come after me for this one, (laughs) please hear me out. I think that styled shoots can have merit but that you, the photographer, need to be very clear on what it is that you're signing up for, why you're there, and what it is you want to do with it. We talk about being purposeful a lot on this podcast, not just making decisions by flying by the seat of your pants, but that if you're going to enter into something that you know why you're there and what kind of result you're looking for. Um, I was not that intentional uh, at the beginning of my career. And so most of the style shoots that I did participate in um, ended up being kind of a wash, with the exception of the Harry Potter wedding style shoot that we did in like 2011, which was so much fun. And that was purely a pet project. And like it did get featured on a national wedding blog and it was really fun. I just had a really good time with that. But all the other like over the top style shoots that I participated, most of the other over the top style shoots I participated in ended up being kind of a wash. Um, now, I do know vendors who have used style shoots as a super powerful way to build their businesses, specifically um, photographers like David Abel comes to mind. If you've never seen David's work, oh my gosh, it is breathtaking. He's based in Richmond, Virginia, and over the last few years, he's made this pivot into this very fine art editorial feel, and he's used editorial shoots to build this magnificent portfolio, and you can see that there's crossover between the portfolio work that he's created for himself and how that how that also resonates with the work that he does for his actual wedding couples. Kat Schmoyer, founder of the Creative at Heart Conference, she's an integrator. She also did a really good job with this. She started out as a wedding planner and when she was building her portfolio, she did something like 
I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I think it was something like eight to 10 styled shoots, each of them with a different photographer, which helps to build vendor relationships. And all of those helped to demonstrate her versatility and her creativity. But I've also seen so many photographers pour money and time into participating in or maybe hosting their own style shoots only to find that those images have no place in their portfolio because they are so far from their normal portfolio of paid work for actual clients. Like maybe you're a wedding photographer in a small town and you want to do more city weddings. So you sign up for some style shoot. You pay to go to a style shoot at an iconic location in like the closest metropolitan area to you. And the event is styled past the point of reality. We're talking like an obscene amount of florals and couture gowns and over the top detail and like models who you question like, are they walking around with an Instagram filter on their face or does their face actually just look like that? You know what I mean? Like it, it, it no longer feels relatable and it doesn't feel real. And then you try to put those photographs into your portfolio against what now feels like a humble collection of real people, real couples in your small town. And that new material ends up sticking out like a sore thumb. So style shoots are a great way to practice a new skill. They're a fantastic way to build vendor relationships. And and yes, you can use those to add to your portfolio. But you need to approach these with care and with intention. If you are going to craft or pay to participate in a style shoot and let me be clear if you're crafting your own style shoot they are expensive it's a lot of time and you end up putting a lot of your own resources into them and and they can pay off but if you're going to craft one or pay to participate in a style shoot that is completely different from your existing body of work just know that there may be limited options for you to showcase that work because of how out of alignment that is with your existing brand presence. Um, so if you're someone who is intentionally trying to make a pivot into a new market, maybe you're like, I want to be doing more editorial work. There's not a lot of options for that in my current market. And so you start doing these styled shoots as a way to showcase what you hope to be hired for one day, then you just need to make sure that when you are presenting those photographs, that they are also presented alongside, alongside intentional messaging that also reflects the change of direction. So I did a few styled shoots, did several styled shoots um, as a wedding photographer. You know, you go to conferences and they offer like, oh, you can upgrade your experience to do the styled shoot. Sometimes they include styled shoots. Workshops, in-person workshops almost always have styled shoots associated with them when you're in the wedding industry. Um, and so I did my fair share of them. I did not get a lot of mileage out of those images in terms of showing them in my portfolio and presenting those as like, look what I did. I feel like they were always identifiable as workshops. However, when it comes to being a brand photographer, and this is something we talk about in um, season one, episode six, how to get your first clients. I talk about the concept of beta clients. And I feel like this is kind of similar to a style shoot because what a beta client is is somebody that you and for full details go listen to season one episode six but tldr version is a beta client is someone that you would dream of shooting for um and that you approach them and sort of pitch your services to them um, because you want to showcase them in your portfolio typically i advise doing beta clients when you're when you're trying to ramp up your brand photography business but they're also applicable if you're trying to you know change directions so let's say you're a brand photographer for, and you have a ton of real estate clients, but you really want to be working more with, 
I'm just making this up, artisans, people who work with their hands, potters, painters, jewelry makers. And so maybe you go out, you go out and seek out two to three beta clients in your target audience and say, I'd love to photograph for you. Um, can we work together on this? Like you're pitching them. So I think that when you put beta clients in the context of quote unquote style shoots, which I don't they're not exactly the same thing, but similar enough in, in principle to showcase what you can do. I think that can be incredibly powerful because you have so much control over what's transpiring in front of your camera. So I said in the intro to this episode, like the expense that I do think was kind of a waste of money as a wedding photographer, but that I probably would repeat as a brand photographer. That is it. Beta clients, if you put those into sort of the same category as style shoots. All right, so bad investment number three, sponsoring a spot at a bridal expo. So a few years ago, I think it was 2019, maybe 2018, um, I participated in a wedding show at one of my favorite local venues, and I did not book a single wedding off of the experience, which to be honest, did not shock me at all. Uh, It was the first and only bridal show I had ever done. And I put in minimal effort because I had a gut feeling that the setting was not Uh, a good match for my target audience, my ideal client avatar. My my target audience, my brides and my grooms were not finding their vendors at expos. They were choosing photographers from like a curated list that their wedding planner was presenting to them. Um, Plus, I have no idea what makes for a good expo booth. Like I, the only reason my living room looks good is because we had an interior designer do our living room, which sounds really bougie, but I specifically picked that one room because I knew if there was a room in our house that was going to be photographed, it's our living room. So like, I don't even have enough design sense to design my own house, much less a booth at a vendor expo that, you know, makes people want to feel invited and come in. Um, So I was at this expo with two other photographers and they both came to play. Like they knew what was up. They have obviously done expos before because their booths were buzzing the entire time. And mine was pretty forlorn. Like we got the occasional passerby that was like, oh, lovely work. And I'm like, thank you. You're never going to hire me. And that's fine. Like this just this was not a good fit for me. Um, And I'm sure that those other photographers booked a ton of business off of that show. But for me, it was not the right move. So why did I sign up if I had a feeling ahead of time that it wasn't a good fit? Because I knew the folks at the venue and I was flattered that they asked me to participate. And I didn't want to turn down the offer of a spot when I had a really good relationship with their events team. So perks of being there, it wasn't a total wash. Um, Perks of being there was that I did get the chance to network with some of the other vendors, uh, including one of my favorite floral designers. So while it definitely was a wash in terms of bookings, I still had a good time while I was there. Bad investment number four, that time I had a gallery show and only sold two pieces. I don't think I've ever talked about this one before. So for you, you heard it here first on the Artisan CEO podcast. So this is an expensive example of why you should never put a ton of money into a solution until you're sure that there's existing demand for it. So Matt and I, a few years ago, were down in Charlottesville. I think this was 2017. Um, and I had walked into a boutique, this super cute boutique that had an assortment of clothing and accessories and gifts. And I saw that the shop owner had several books, like coffee table books on Paris on display up at the front. And so my Francophile self couldn't resist striking up a conversation about our mutual love for France. And like, 
I mentioned I was a photographer and that I had this France series that I'd been working on over the last few years. Um, and she mentioned that she would love to have me do a gallery show in her shop. She featured a different artist, uh, different artist's work in her shop every month. And you'd put up pieces that were for sale and they'd be there for you know, the whole month of October, the whole month of November, whatever. And she wanted to know if I would be interested in displaying and selling some of my fine art Paris pieces. Um, yes, I was so excited about this. Jumped at the opportunity. I said yes before I left the shop. I was like, 100%, yes, please. Here's my email. Please email me. Tell me the specifics. Uh, it sounded so cool. And I was like, this is going to make me look awesome. So I had something like 25 prints made um, from one of my favorite printers, done on fine art, archival, Hanamule paper, which is really expensive per print. I don't know what the pricing is like, but it's it's very, like, you're talking like $30 for an 8x10 wholesale cost the last time I checked, which was several years, which was probably, honestly, for this gallery show. <laughs> and then I paid to have all of them custom matted and framed at my local frame shop. Uh, shout out to Nick of Ashburn Art and Framing. Love him. We go to him for all our framing needs. This episode is not sponsored. I just really love local small business. So anyway, my total investment for the prints and the matting was something like $2,000. I spent like $500 in the prints and then $1,500 on framing and matting. Um, which I would have made that back if I had sold the work on display. <laughs> so when the day of the gallery show opening came, I, I drove back down to Charlottesville. I spent the whole day hanging my work. Um, and uh, there was an opening night party that night. A few people trickled in for it. And then the only two pieces that sold over the next month were the ones that were purchased by the shop owner. I think she felt bad for me. Uh, I mean, that was really kind of her, but still, like, humbling. I was really embarrassed uh, by the lack of success. Uh, I never actually even blogged about it. And I never told my audience about it. I never told them I was having a gallery show. My family knew. And uh, I think that was it. <laughs> my parents didn't make it down for it, which is fine. Like, they were busy. But, you know, come on. It's a gallery show, right? But it's but it's also it was a gallery show at a boutique. So it's not like an art gallery. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not mad at you, Mom and Dad, if you're listening to this episode. So the lesson learned here was to make sure that there is more demand for a product before you invest in creating this. I let my ego make the decision about the gallery shows. Like, that's going to make me look so cool. This is going to make me look very in demand. This is what fine artists do. They have gallery shows. This is what a real artist would do. But there wasn't enough demand to warrant the expense. It was one person who told me, you should do that. And so because of my ego... I ended up with $2,000 less in my bank account and 23 remaining framed and matted prints sitting in my attic. Uh, we've used them, to be fair, we've used them to decorate our house throughout the last few years and I've given some as gifts, but um, it's still a little twinge every time I go up into our attic and see that box of white frames, but you live and you learn. All right, bad investment number five, paying for coaching without a clear goal of what I wanted to grow. Several years ago, I paid for... A coaching program with a coach. This is not the same one that we talked about in uh, mistake number one. Different coaching program. Um, with a coach that I heard amazing things about. Super smart person. We were really excited to learn from them. Uh, but my mistake here was not really knowing what I wanted to get out of the experience. So this wasn't on the coach at all. This was on me because I wasn't even sure how I needed them to coach me or like where it was that I was hoping coaching would take me. So our sessions ended up being 
mostly like fixing little issues that came up in the day-to-day minutiae of business like oh I got this awkward email how should I handle that or oh this like Facebook ad isn't doing exactly what I wanted like can you give me some advice on how to tweak that um we didn't you know go deeper or do the sort of larger scale growth that I couldn't have achieved on my own because I honestly did not even know what it was I needed or what I was asking for so the coach was great at helping me navigate the small stuff but these days that is not what I want to hire a coach for. I want to, if I'm going to enter into a coaching relationship, I want to, that makes it sound like a like a covenant relationship. If I'm going to enter into a coaching relationship, which to be fair, I mean, you do sign a contract and they're usually pretty hefty investment. So anyway, um, if I'm going to hire a coach, I want to come in with intention, uh, something, some sort of bigger picture shift that... I need help either refining the vision for or maybe I need help with execution. So my main mistake was not having a bigger picture in mind other than I want to grow my business. And I think at that time I was floundering for what came next and I figured that a coach would tell me what my next dream should be like. I don't know what's next. You tell me. Or that this coach would be able to make decisions for me about where my business should grow. I didn't trust my own instincts uh, at the time. And I also – and I'll say – that's something that take that can take years to learn to trust your own instincts to realize like oh the reason that this thing started in the first place was because you had a good eye or because you had good business instincts and like with all the education we pour into our brains sometimes we start second guessing the very thing that made us successful in the first place um, and if that's happening to you it's okay it happened to me too so I didn't trust my own instincts and I I, I also hadn't spent enough time however long ago this was, four years ago, five years ago, um, hadn't spent enough time in deeper thought to discern what should come next. Like not what comes next for a business owner like me or what's the next level of achievement for wedding photographers because I was a wedding photographer at the time. But like, hey, according to my gifts and my God-given strengths, According to the vision that the Lord has given me and my husband for our business and the people that we feel called to serve, based on that, what's next? I wasn't asking that question. It was, what does someone like me do next? Because I don't know for myself. I was just on the onward and upward train and, and I didn't know what the next step was. So I figured, hey, coaching will tell me what to do with my life and my business. So I mentioned in the last episode, the one on the five best investments that I've made, that the number one place I've spent money is on the mastermind that I'm currently part of. I've been in it for two years. And I joined that mastermind with the intention of scaling our online offers, our offers for photographers. And I wanted help from my coach inside that program on how to do that. I wanted her to be able to tell me, what are the best avenues of marketing going to be? What should we try that we haven't tried before? What Something she always says is like, what lever can you pull that's already working that will make the biggest difference? She's also helped us see how to finesse our current offers so that they're packed with value and then how to position those offers so that they will best attract the people they were designed to serve. And yes, there are times where I go to my coach and I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. And then her response is to ask questions like, what lever can you pull? She asks questions to help me make a decision for myself. She doesn't tell me what to do. She helps me see what options are available to me and which one's going to make the biggest impact. And that's why coaching this time around has been so valuable and impactful because I've learned that it is not a coach's job to make decisions for me, but to help me learn how to make them for myself. 
Speaking of learning to make decisions for yourself, if you haven't already reserved your seat inside the new masterclass, The Six Types of Light You'll Meet at a Brand Session, this is your reminder to head over to abbygrace.co slash masterclass. I would love to see you in there as we learn to diagnose the light on set so that you can stop freaking out and stay in control at your very next brand session. abbygrace.co slash masterclass to claim your spot. Coming up in the next episode, we'll be talking about how to have deeper, more impactful conversations at in-person events like conferences and industry get-togethers. I'll be sharing how to move from forgettable small talk to the sort of discussions that forge more lasting relationships and how to stand out with a few easy-to-remember questions that you can use at your very next in-person event. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode and head over to abbygrace.co slash podcast for even more resources to help you blow your clients away at your very next brand shoot. I'm Abby Grace and I'll see you next time. Now, let's go get after it, shall we?